Welcome to Buildings and Beyond. The podcast that explores how we can create a more sustainable built environment. By focusing on efficiency, accessibility, and health. I'm Rob Aldrich. And I'm Kelly Westby. This week is part two in my conversation with Steve Clucky, architect and raider here at Stephen Winter Associates. We were talking about his top 10 frustrations, top 10 multifamily design mistakes. And this week we talk about the second uh, five on his list. We start by talking about lighting controls, which was probably the one that I found most surprising. Here's the deal. All right. I was surprised to see this on your list. I was. Really? Well, oh, because it's so often done poorly. We're, and we're, again, we're talking about multifamily buildings. Yes. When there are just lights that are on always. Is that the issue? As far as I can tell, the only reasons to have lights on all the time is if you're growing pot. Or, which is legal for some of our listeners, certainly. Which is certainly legal for some of you. Um, or in areas of you know egress, etc. Um, the the trick is in areas of egress. So there's there's a lot of different parts of the code and a lot of different codes that apply to lighting. So, so here's the gist: ten foot candles is the norm for supplying illumination to a space. Um, what kind of space? The norm e- for... Let's focus on egress, I guess, because okay. that's the areas that right. usually get screwed up. Those are the areas. Okay. Yeah. Um, but when it's not in use, an egress area is not in use. You can go down to as low as one foot candle. And that's a big jump in consumption of energy. So, um, you know, there's parts of the energy code that says you have to have occupancy sensors in these, you know, dozen spaces. It doesn't say you can't have occupancy sensors in these other spaces, right? And so, it's a it's a misinterpretation <laughs> problem. Okay. And oh, so, so really, you see, that it's not that people are lazy and don't care about energy. They think well, sometimes. Yes, I do see that too. Yeah. <laughs> But sometimes they think the code forbids. Uh, uh, that's my impression. Okay. Yeah. Right. You know, in, in rooms like uh, you know electrical rooms, they you know for safety reasons, et cetera. I'm not going to argue with that. Okay. Um, but you know, a lot of times you're going to have these stairs where in some buildings we have um, you know for security reasons they don't want people to use the stairs, and so they actually kind of make it harder to use the stairs, and yet they've got the lights on 24/7 uh, full right. blast in there, all right. and it just kills me. Um, and so really what you need to do is put in um, controls. It's all about controls. You know this from an engineering standpoint, Rob. It's all about controls. Smart buildings. And now, occupancy sensor, vacancy sensor. What's the difference? An occupancy sensor will turn on when someone enters the room. And it'll turn off after a certain period, after which it stops sensing that when person in the room. it stops sensing occupancy. A vacancy sensor, you typically will turn on yourself. And then it'll turn itself off. Oh, all right. Okay. No, I wasn't familiar right. with it. I didn't and, know that. And there are some spaces where one is appropriate and some spaces where the other is appropriate. And that's not a timer. It's It actually, you turn it on yeah. and then there is an occupancy sensor that senses you until you leave. In this room we're sitting in right now, it is an occupancy sensor. And it doesn't matter if the sun is shining bright through the windows. Right. This light comes on. It drives right. me nuts. Yeah. Yeah. And it will eventually shut off, but, you know, think of all the startup you know, wear and tear on the lights and the consumption, et cetera. And so, um, you know, an occupancy se- an occupancy sensor makes sense in your egress areas where, look, 
if it's an emergency, you don't want someone to have to flip the switch right. and turn the lights on, and you have 100 people you know, plowing over you because you're the first one through the door, right? I see. So as a, a vacancy sensor, in this, in this office in which we're recording, for instance, if someone office walked... Office being the operative word there. Office is the perfect place for a vacancy Walked into sensor. this office, and if I just... Oh, I just came in to empty the trash. I just came in to grab my coffee to go get some more coffee. I came to steal Rob's charger from my <laughs> iPhone because I got forgotten. <laughs> so, right. <laughs> You have to turn on the light yes. if, you want, if you want it on. Yeah. Or, yeah, in, in a lot of the offices, there's a lot of that. Plenty of natural light. I yes. see. Okay. okay. So this would be a great place for a vacancy sensor. Agreed. Uh, but not so an in, egress area. No, in multifamily buildings, are there what, what places are good for vacancy sensors? So offices, closets. Um, okay. You, you know, you go well, into a closet community to, rooms. Exercise rooms, gotcha. mail rooms, gotcha. yeah, trash rooms. As far as I'm concerned, all right. I suppose you could do an occupancy sensor in there because most of them are internal and don't have any windows. Right, right, know? right. But you know, you're, in your egress areas, your corridors, and all those places, you definitely want an occupancy sensor because yep, that for safety. safety. And we'll never try to pick a fight with a code official. I mean, we know where we stand. All right. And but there are nuances that are being missed. And they're getting better and cheaper. Yeah, right? yeah, and yeah. And you, I guess you have to balance the short-term versus long-term cost implications. If, look, if you're selling this building, you're not paying for the utilities or whatever, you're gonna put in whatever's cheapest. Right. If you're maintaining the building, keeping it, you know, you're gonna want something that's gonna minimize your operating costs. And so and these are there's that issue too. That don't come into the ratings a lot of the times. So. They're required under some certifications. I see. Yeah. Okay. And it's and it, uh, basically what it comes down to is an argument <laughs> with me. I'm like, and they're like, hey, you can't do this. I'm like, well, no, you can. You just need to try a little harder. <laughs> All right. Yeah. All right. And you try to say that without hurting anybody's feelings or sounding like a jerk, which is not always achieved by yours truly, but so close. <laughs> Moving on. I'm gonna let you. T- I'm gonna let you talk about this one. Oversized HVAC. I'm glad that as the engineer in the room, Rob defers to the architect in the room to talk about oversized Just HVAC. Just for my own I think, I think it's going to be a testament to how well I've been trained by the engineers here at Stephen Winter Associates. So the key word here is short cycling. And it doesn't mean a whole lot of people on bicycles that are short of stature. That means, and that's the slide in my presentation, is of my bicycling team uh, from Ragbri in Iowa. Anyway, uh, short cycling means that your equipment is typically of a single speed. It turns on hard, runs hard, shuts off, and it does that in rapid succession. Um, and so what you get is, if you, uh, the analogy I use is a car, or like, like say you're in a taxi or something like that. If you're in a Crown, Crown, Vic, Crown Vic with a V8 engine, you get in there, the driver pounds on the gas until he hits the red light and then pounds on the brakes. So not only is he wearing out the vehicle faster, he's consuming way more gas than he should. He's um, making you sick in the back seat, <laughs> um, et cetera, et cetera. So if you apply to HVAC, it's, it's you know, humidification or dehumidification, I should say, is the hot topic now as we, as we keep getting these warm, um, wet summers that are seem they seem to be warmer and wetter than in the past. I'm not going to digress into any sort of 
questionable theories. Uh, anyway. Good save. Yeah. Jeez, we don't want to make any enemies here. <laughs> uh, good thing our house is on a hill here in Norwalk. Anyway, uh, so you, you're not pulling that um, latent heat. Yeah. I, and th- that's, that's for you. That was for I, your benefit I, right there, Rob. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. I, I think that's which, which means concern. moisture to the rest of you architects out there. And thank you for clarifying because I wasn't going <laughs> to. I was like, yeah, of course, you're of right. Of course, like, yeah, that's why I knew that. Uh, no, that's, that's, I think, one of the biggest, probably the biggest issue with oversizing is not dehumidifying yeah. in, a, in a humid, warmer, humid climate. You really don't get the dehumidification. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So you're not achieving the efficiency that your equipment's rated to because it's short cycling. You're wearing it out. Um, you're not getting the dehumidification on the cooling side. And it's just uncomfortable. You know, like who wants a cold, hard blast of air on their necks every 10 minutes, right? Yep. You'd rather have sort even of more even kind of a smooth operation and ramp up a little bit, ramp down a little bit. Smooth yeah. operator is what we aim for. It's interesting. So they're, 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 you can make an argument that some fuel-fired heating systems, there's not a big efficiency penalty sure. to over over size, especially those that ramp down, like you know, boilers, for example, can just yeah. go at a tenth of their what is it? What is well, that? What's that term, Mister Engineer? Modulating, but uh, turn down? No. Turn down, sure. Yeah, that's right. the term I'm looking for. Yeah, if you can modulate down ninety percent, turn down ninety percent. Yeah, that's that's pretty good. Turn down service. Uh, but I, I think it's a comfort issue. Yeah, it's a dehumid- it's a humidity issue. Yeah, and it's a cost issue. Oh, yeah? I mean, you know, if you, you put in, especially with air conditioning, I mean, you put in twice the capacity you need, you pay almost, you know, almost twice as much. Yeah, I mean, but Rob, what if you're going to add on someday? You really want that extra capacity, man. We're talking about multifamily buildings. Oh, Who's right. going to add That's on? True, single Who's going to add on, Steve? I Come had on. a new house recently where I was like, oh, man, did you get sold? Anyway, next one. Next one. <laughs> And, and this is actually, I, I've been dealing with this tons lately. On, I'm sorry, the oversized HVAC. With, oh, we're going to dwell on that one, are with, we? Just, just give me a moment. <laughs> <laughs> with heat pumps, which are, which are really taking over in a lot of, in a lot of things. Everybody yeah. thinks that, oh, the heat pump is no problem. It's right, totally it up down, and down, no up and down. No. It has a really big efficiency and comfort potential drawbacks when you oversize. Oh, yeah. Well, I was in townhome in Brooklyn, well, in Park Slope, actually, where millions of dollars of art on the walls and it's getting ruined because they, you know, they got these great VRF systems, but they're just too darn big. Mm. Yeah. No good. All right. We need to do another episode on humidity. Too much. Too much. All right. Moving on. For real this time. For real. For real. Antiquated ventilation. Yeah. So I start... This one, I start off uh, in my presentation with, you know, the old school way of dumping a bunch of air into your corridors, undercutting your apartment entry doors and expecting the air to get into the apartments. Not only is it not allowed by mechanical code, it's not allowed by fire code. This is one I still with an exhaust see. fan. So we're talking about an exhaust you get, fan. Yeah, exhaust out of your apartments in your your makeup air. Makeup air. Is, you know, I yep. realize that it's important in some areas. In this area, it's not applicable it's makeup air it's coming from the wrong place you don't want to be pumping air into the middle of the building and expecting it to get to where it needs to be gotcha right you need to control the air so by antiquated ventilation we're basically meaning we got to take it up a couple of notches as far as well and let's turn turn the 
equation backwards. What if we have central exhaust and then we've got trickle vents and air vents and things like that? You know, and we, unfortunately, we're pretty guilty of this. We've said for a while, based on program clarifications, that trickle vents are required. And um, we've, I mean, I've done a few studies. I'm fairly sure you can tell me better that show that they really don't work all that well because you get all kinds of stratification and tall buildings and stack effect and all kinds of funny things are happening when you take control away from your ventilation system. It needs to be controlled. And both the exhaust and supply. Exactly, both sides. Okay. Yeah. You can't you can't do one and hope the other side works out works itself out. Right. And that's Oh my god, for a century that's been the standard. Where you just suck air from the kitchens, you have a big mushroom fan on the roof, so it's big stack, sucks air from bathrooms and kitchens, and there you go. Yep. You're all done. Well, I still get asked why we have to have exhaust in kitchens. So We have, we have Kelly's doing a separate episode. Okay, we're just not going to dwell on that one. <laughs> there's a bit, but there's a hot topic also. Hot topic. Passive House and IEQ people are butting heads over it. Yeah. I stay out of that. So what would you like to see? I mean, we're talking balanced ventilation. We're talking ERVs, HRVs. What's what's good? Well, it's a matter of of what you can stomach. So in my we're talking money. What are we talking? Yeah, basically. Yeah. All right. I mean, um, the extreme end of the spectrum is balanced ventilation through an ERV, HRV. Okay. Um, I feel like that's the direction that you know code is going to go. Eventually. Programs certainly. I think. As soon as as soon as um, the people who have been fighting it thus far run out of gas, and Rob says no, reading his body language. I just don't see how how um, yeah. With more and more studies that come out about the the value of indoor air quality, um, I just I, don't see how we can keep not doing that. I don't disagree. It's and this is again, this is a whole other topic. Mm. But all of the so many, not all, so many of the balanced ventilation systems I see, ERVs and HRVs, they may not be installed properly. Oh, you yeah. Know, and that's a big deal. They yeah. may not work from day one. And if they do work on day one, they're they may not maintained yeah. so poorly yeah. or not at all that they yeah. don't work even like six, nine months after occupancy. Yeah. So that, I mean, that's a big deal. And that, that I think, is one of the more valid arguments against mandating ERVs and HRVs. Yeah. But you can't argue with the performance benefits, with the health benefits, with the indoor air quality benefits. Well, in our house, um, we your did house, your own house, our own house, we renovated. You know, lead platinum, um, exhaust only ventilation strategy meets ASHRAE. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, all the boxes are checked. And then after living in it in a year, we th- were like, no, it's too stuffy. We're, huh? not, we're not getting. I'm. I feel like I'm physically affected because I don't have enough fresh air. Huh. And so we put the ERV in. And it, it literally was a night-day difference. Oh, interesting. And so right. here's the deal. Do they cost more to install? Yes. Do they cost more to operate? Yes. Mm, Do they... Well, the right? energy savings can certainly make up for... Right. Well, in our house, at least, we had turned up the flow rate above the exhaust only, uh, what we had for exhaust only. So in our case, that was the case. It, it cost more to operate and um, okay. more, there's more air to heat and cool. Basically, all right, all right. Um, and it, it took up space in the attic, yada yada yada. But you know what? I mean, when you it's your family, and you don't think you guys you're you're as healthy as you should be. I mean, it's a no brainer. Now, as an as a designer, 
it, it's different, you know. But I guess I, in my presentation, I say, look, try to think of it as your kids or your family. I mean, if you're living in these apartments, I know what the constraints are, but, um, you know, it's something to consider. I, you know, I tug at the heartstrings. Uh, no, I, I, there's, there's no argument about the benefits. Yeah. It's, um, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah. And there's better ways to do it. Maybe there are better products coming. Hope, yeah. Yeah, we're right. slow to it here in the U.S. I mean, I guess it's, in Europe. It's, uh, and in Canada. It's much, yeah. it's, it's, it's very, very common. Yeah. And in a multifamily building with good property managers, with good people, owners, good maintenance, they yeah. can be maintained yeah. really well. So. Yeah. All well, right. I mean, do you buy a car and not change the oil every, you know, 5,000 5, miles or yeah. whatever? Well, yeah. Most people don't. Right. Most, but on the on ERVs and HRVs, yeah. most people do. Well, this is the luxury I have of it just being an hour presentation. I can <laughs> say what you're doing wrong and not worry about the bigger consequences. <laughs> all right. And, and we – all right, enough about ventilation. Good. I know, I know you want to dwell on that, but maybe uh, well, that's a whole could, other we podcast. We could go on and on and on, yeah. we, but we won't. Okay. Uh, domestic hot water. Domestic hot water. This is one where I reached distribution. You distribution. Have yeah. Okay. So I, I had always wondered before I got into this. I, I had always wondered how the hotel hot water works. How is it that it's a big hotel and I can turn on the faucet and I get hot water Scalding, right away? Scalding right away. Scalding hot water. And I wonder, how does that work? And now I know, right? There's hot water coursing through the building 24-7. Um, and so you can't get around that. I mean, people are going to want their hot water and not have to wait for it. So the, at this point, the best you can do is make that system as efficient as you can. And that means um, the the this is the most technical part of the presentation. There's a diagram showing a three-pipe domestic hot water recirculation system and a box design. And basically all it is is taking um, the return side, the hot water return, and shortening those runs. Instead of taking them back down the risers that they came up, so in a multifamily building you're gonna have a, hopefully you have your hot water generation on the roof, it's coming down um, a shaft in the middle of the building and then getting distributed horizontally and then back up again into the various apartments. And then it goes back down again, over again, and then up again, right? Yeah. So instead of taking the return water back down to the building, you just take it across the top of the building. You take a shortcut back to where it came from in the first place. And so basically, if you can reduce your pipe length, um, if you can also reduce your pipe diameter, I mean, so a surface area, right? Yeah. And so, you know, a and lot insulate of the, the, insulate it really and well. If you can insulate them, right? Um, well, back to pipe diameter. I mean, in New York City, at least, we have to have low flow fixtures. In any of our green programs, you have to have low flow fixtures. And engineers are still designing their pipes to the higher medium on that ASHRAE chart, right? And so they should be going no more than the low. Because unless everybody in the building yanks their showerhead on the first day they move in and puts in a you know nine gallon per minute or whatever, Seinfeld episode comes to mind. Really? <laughs> yes. All right, I'll have to take a word for that. A word on that. Um, anyway, yeah, uh, you don't need those big pipes. The bigger pipes, bigger loss. Yeah. So longer pipes, more loss. Um, and insulation. Just making sure you've got your details in there. Get those things insulated. And, and 
Yeah. And this is something where it's I we'll put the link to your to your one of your powerpoints up on the site because sure. this is and others here have done some work on this because yeah. it's it's much easier to get a handle on this when you're looking at diagrams. Yeah. In my, it's a very my, visual thing. Yeah. But but you're right. I mean, people people are it's it's the oversizing thing again. It's overkill, you know. Yeah, yeah and, and it's a CYA. Not in, throwing engineers under the bus, but you are a conservative lot. I, I'm just gonna say it. I and and good thing. Sometimes <laughs> <laughs> it's not inappropriate. That's not a bad thing. Sometimes. All right. How about and how about controls for DHW distribution? With, I with, didn't get into that. with with. All right. Well, you are I will get to. into it right now. Rob, tell me about controls. <laughs> so, like you said, in hotels, there's this big loop that's yeah. pumped twenty four seven. Yeah. And no in hotels, controls. and in larger multifamily buildings, that's pretty much necessary. Yeah. I think sure. pumped twenty four seven. In smaller multifamily buildings, I think there's potential for demand control. Sure. So there's what, super simply, if there, there's like a flow switch that senses. If anybody is calling for hot water, mm-hmm. and whenever anybody's calling for hot water, then a pretty large pump comes on, primes the system very quickly, mm-hmm. so people wait, you know, very short amount mm-hmm. of time. But then when nobody's calling for hot water, it shuts off, and you're not recirculating hot water throughout the building. Midnight to four a.m. is is no, but you don't want to discriminate against people on the second shift. No, you know? I mean, I'm just saying though that you know instead of running full blast all night, I mean, there's yeah, like you said, there's savings to be had there. Yeah, for sure. All right, we'll move on. Last, lastly, but not least, not leastly, poor communication. Yeah. So is that a design mistake? And so here's what I say. Yes, it is. Yes, I agree with you. Because what is your job as an architect or an engineer? It's uh, what is your product, I should say. Your product is not the building. Your product is not the MEP systems. Your product is the design, is the drawings and specs. That's That's your deliverable. And so if you cannot convey what you're trying to achieve... Um, through those drawings and specs, you're not living up to, you know, your role as as designer. And so, you know, it's it's making sure that um, you're getting um, everything that you need to on paper, but you're also getting the feedback you need. Um, so, architects, are you listening to your engineers, or are you just throwing background drawings at them and expecting them to make it work, you know, with whatever? You know, you, you architects, you know, you, they've got their hands full with all kinds of other things, right? Oh, and so, you know, engineers all. just one more, you know, input to this whole big machine that, that you know, technically they're responsible for. But, um, you know, the best projects I've seen is where the architects and engineers have a real partnership and they communicate back and forth. And, you know, an engineer will tell an architect, well, why are you drawing it like that? Why don't you, if you could just do this, this, and this, our systems would be that much smaller, and you know, so it's got to be a two-way street as far as and, communication goes. And there are more and more people involved, like through through the radar, to the the passive house consultant, to the sustainability consultant. I mean, if if your feedback gets incorporated, this might be slightly early. biased, but yes, one big important point <laughs> is listen to your consultants and um, actually, you know, again, have that two-way dialogue. And we're not here to just tell you how much your design is not right. We want the building to be better. We're, we've been improving the built environment since 
two, I'm fairly sure. Six years before I was born, but I was ah, ah. I was thinking about it. Um, but anyway, yeah. So I mean, it's and also uh, construction. I mean, I was up in an attic out in Long Island on uh, Tuesday this week, and we're up there, and I'm like, I'm sorry, guys, you you just got sort of backed into a corner here. Like I couldn't have done this any better than you did, but it's still not where it needs to be because of the limitations that were placed on you by the design. And so you know, the good architects will get out there and they'll get their boots dirty and they'll talk to the people who are actually building their buildings and they'll learn from it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you, you learn, you learn so much being on the field and seeing, seeing, seeing screw ups more than anything else. I got to say. Learning from mistakes. Yeah. Well, and not even necessarily mistakes, but maybe just things that could have been done better. If you can get out there and communicate with the guys and gals who are actually making it happen, Mm -hmm. they have a lot they could teach you and I learn every time I go out I learn something oh, yeah. from you know just some random plumber and you know like oh that make you know yep. like, I, I'm gonna put that in my toolbox and you know contribute that in the future because yep. I would never know and it, and it goes both ways I mean I, I've explained to, to, to various trades you know the importance of an air barrier what we're trying to accomplish right. and it's not necessarily straightforward. No. Well, and I, you know, I get a lot of good suggestions. They're like, "Oh, what if we did it like this?" And I'm like, "Yeah, you could do it like that." Right. You know? I Yeah, so just as designers, don't I don't know if the siloing is the right term, but don't don't put yourself in a place where you're not willing to take feedback basically. So, communication is, you know, making sure what you're putting out there is good in the first place. Um, and then, you know, being willing to hear um, feedback on it. And the other thing, uh, and it actually feathers back into number two, which is design irregularities. You know, engineers are really good at having a pile of stock details that they'll apply depending on what kind of system they're working with. Architects, not so much. Um, oh, some are. Is that right? Right. Okay. I, I don't okay. think at least. Personally, uh. I don't feel. I mean, it's, and it's not like... It, if you're Here's drawing a window detail from scratch every time you're you're, you're doing exactly, or if you're redrawing the same detail two or three times, yeah. it's a bad detail from the beginning. Like, <laughs> so so what you do is you learn from good designs. You put them in your own little virtual toolbox, right? right? You say for wood construction, this is how we do it. For steel construction, this is how we do it. You've got those stock details. Use them. Spend your time instead of wasting your time trying to redesign the wheel a little bit every time. Build yourself a good um, stable of you know details, yeah, absolutely. And then either a spend the rest of your time. Well, actually, charge your clients less. There you go. There's one thing. Make the project <laughs> affordable overall. B spend your extra time on making the building better in other ways. Or C, you know, just go golfing, spend some time with your kids, be happy, you know, whatever. Right. There you go. Yeah, I mean, like, why are we spending our time? You're solving all with the world's problems. Cutesy right wootsy little details. Uh, and I'm not trying to be making any enemies, but you know, I've got a builder in New Jersey uh, who does affordable senior living developments, and in an 80 unit building, there are three unique designs. Three. 80. Eight zero. Eight zero. Eight okay. zero unit building. Three unique designs. Guess what? He can't build these things fast enough. Um, people love them. They're relatively efficient. And so it's like, are they winning any design awards? 
Not necessarily, but are they provide? Is he providing affordable, healthy, efficient places for elderly people who need that sort of thing? It, yeah, All and right. I mean, it's nice to have a design trophy on your shelf, but gosh, I don't know. I would sleep pretty good if I was saying that I was providing that. Right on. You know, fantastic. Yeah, that's the gist fantastic. of it, right there. Right on. That's ten. We did pretty good. We did. Less than an hour. Yeah. Anything, any other concluding comments? Anything to wrap up? Yeah, so basically, so the, at the beginning of the presentation, here's where it starts. Design decisions made in the office have a snowball effect throughout both the design process, the construction process, and the life of the building, right? And the earlier you can make good decisions, um, the better off you're going to be, or your building's going to be in, per- in perpetuity, Thanks. Well done. Thank you. Um, and so you know, someone asked me as I was asking around the office, you know, like for suggestions on design mistakes and what I should incorporate in this thing. And he said, well, have you thought about why people keep making these bad design mistakes? And, you know, that's a good question. It's very meta or whatever you want to say. But And I thought about it, and it's like, you know, design is just decisions. It is decision after decision after decision after decision. It's endless. Yeah, I mean, that's really all design is, is you're deciding to do one thing or another, right? So here's the thing. If you don't know that's what design is, how can you actually make good decisions, right? How can you how can you move your design forward if you don't realize that every every time you put that pencil down to paper, which nobody does anymore, obviously, but every time you click that mouse, you're making a decision. So, you know, valuing those decisions um, is important and it's super hard to keep in mind and also very fluffy. But really, that's where it's at. I mean, because no, who else is going to do it? I mean, all these buildings keep popping up or do they happen spontaneously? Yep. No, people are drawing them. People are developing them. Right. So, no, I mean, yeah, you don't want to be by rote. Being mindful, being conscious, learning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm with yeah. you. Yep, there it is. Thank you very much, Steve. You're welcome very much, Rob. Thank you for listening to Buildings and Beyond. For more information about the topics discussed today, visit www.swinter.com slash podcast and check out the episode show notes. Buildings and Beyond is brought to you by Stephen Winter Associates. We provide energy, green building, and accessibility consulting services to improve the built environment. Our professionals have led the way since 1972 in the development of best practices to achieve high-performance buildings. Our production team for today's episode includes Dylan Martello, Alex Mirable, and myself, Heather Breslin. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.